Today on Doctor Who's That, we talk about stink monkeys, child marriage, and who's that fish. And welcome back to Doctor Who's That, the show where we introduce a Doctor Who newbie to the show. I am your host and Doctor Who expert, Sean Gleason. And I am your co-host and Doctor Who semi-expert, Andy Walker. I'm your Doctor Who neophyte, Day Johnson. And I am uh, some, uh, you know, why know they find on the street. My name is Juan and I come from Mexico. I- I'm a-, a different random vagrant. My name is Kieran. I come from Canada. We are covering the whole continent. Yeah. got North America on lockdown. Today we're continuing our discussion of Marco Polo. When last we met, Susan was screaming. As she's wont to do. <laughs> I mean, I know that's nothing new. She gets paid by the decibel. Yeah. <laughs> Consistency is important in any business. Hey, I mean, all the characters have to have one character trait, right? That's true. I just <laughs> wish hers was a little quieter. So, yeah, uh, the uh, the we started off with the wall of of lies coming out of the scream. Of course, good solid uh, scream intro. We find the gang or half of the gang in the uh, the cave. And the doctor is is a jerk to Susan, as he's wont to do, about whether or not she saw eyeballs in the mask. And what what's this, Tagana? He he's there too, and he just proceeds to awkwardly uh, cover for himself, which is like his theme for the episodes, at least at first. At first, as we'll discover later, he gets way better at it. <laughs> and then he's confronted with the with the handkerchief. Then he begins that that whole this whole spiel of um, spirits, I guess. Right? Yeah. He's just like, well, we better go before we, you know we anger the spirits. I'm out of here. Right. Right. Guys, no, seriously, there's like tons of, sp- don't, don't look around. There's, we don't want to, there's spirits, you guys, come yep. on. Nothing to see here. Let's go. How is this man's authority that seriously taken by everybody when he seems to be constantly terrified of ghost attacks? <laughs> well, they don't, I mean, they don't seem to take him too seriously. And then of course, like Ian and Marco show up and, uh, you know, Tagana definitely turns up. I I remember he like, uh, he takes his sword out and even starts to threaten the spirits a little bit. So he's definitely turning it up to a level. And Ian turns out to be pretty smart and figures out that there's a, a door near the eyeball mask. Yeah, because of course, when, you know, Susan's all like, oh, I see eyes. Everybody's like, oh, shut up, Susan. But when Ian mentions, you know, hey, I see eyes too. Yeah. I don't think they're even like that. that. That's what they are. They are repeatedly telling her and Barbara to shut up for <laughs> two episodes. 
Well, it goes and, on an uncomfortable length. Ian's also a man of science, so he's not going to be swayed by anything having to do with evil spirits or, or anything like that. Or women being hysterical. Right. And as we will learn this episode, Ian is not swayed by anything. Ian <laughs> becomes action Ian. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. He immediately finds the door. And then, of course, they can't open it. But the second later, that's fine because it opens anyway. Like, it's one of the things that keeps happening in this show. So far, it's like they'll kind of bait with a, oh, man, maybe this maybe this could be really difficult to open or something like that. And then just immediately it opens and nobody cares. So Barbara gets rescued. And this is where we learn that Ian, the science teacher, can apparently just overpower seasoned Mongol warriors. Well, he's in action here, oh, you know. He is. This is the first of many instances in, in the following episodes where Ian, I mean, was he in the SAS? That's what I wanted. Like, well, But he would have had national service training. Any, any adult man of about 35 in 1963 would have been would have had several years in the army because okay. conscription was mandatory at that point. yeah that's true that pushes the the bounds of suspension of disbelief a little bit although like again these are he you know did the equivalent of being in the national guard whereas these people have used swords their whole lives but that's fine you know i think that actually that gives me enough to press forward they're off their horses that makes them significantly less tactically impressive i guess is the theory this script didn't actually bother to formulate never mind you're really good no no that's great you're really good at this i'm like that have to like hire you whenever i doubt anything actually (laughs) i was i was thinking back to uh whether ian's killed anybody before i was trying to remember uh, over the the past few serials that we've watched maybe just a dalek yeah i can't i can't think of him like actually committing murder yet well i think that he's murdered good fashion sense but other <laughs> than true. that <laughs> that code i don't know yeah but like once again let's not get ahead of ourselves because later ian you know what i'm saying but tigana begins to like so more impressive discord there's the bit about the magician and does he need a key does he really need a key are you so sure that you've got control over his flying caravan and uh, this is when you know we we start to see tigana you know turn the corner a little bit on being such a crappy villain because his track record is not so great so far, right? Like he's continually thwarted. He's barely escaping by the skin of his teeth in pretty much every argument. But now, you know, he, I think he really finds his stride as that kind of sly snake in the grass kind of thing and does a pretty good job, at least for a while, keeping suspicion off of himself and onto the gang. Yeah, you know, putting seeds of doubt into Marco's mind about whether or not he could actually trust his new friends. Right. And- and by the way, here's, here's an interesting bit of trivia. According to what I was able to find regarding the early life of Ian Charleston, he was uh, in the uh, British Army for three years. He um, uh, actually reached the uh, rank of private. He also ro- joined the Royal Air Force and uh, he was in uh, service both in Malay and in Cyprus at the time. He mainly uh, accounted for in assorted, um, you know, pro short stories. So. That's a stupid uh, sidebar, but well, there it is. That is not a stupid sidebar. That now explains Action Ian, but I'm still going to make fun of him because that's what I wrote down. So, (laughs) One thing I really like about this is that they're actually taking time to have an impact on the story of the fact that the show's premise is ridiculous and narrative logic should fall apart when people in a magic box turn up in the middle of your life. 
this is not something this show does very often and that they spent this much time having this much impact in this story just on the fact that day-to-day logic doesn't make sense when there's a TARDIS sitting in the corner of the room is kind of amazing to me from the perspective of having watched almost all other Doctor Who than this. How do you mean? I mean, because uh, it, it definitely, they definitely make, they definitely talk about it a lot, but it, it does seem like the rest of the story is fairly grounded. But the characters themselves have to deal with the reality of it, and they're bad at dealing with the reality of it. Tagan is not wrong when you think about this. If he's a magician and he needs a key, that's just silly. That is actually someone thinking about the nature of the show within the show, mm. which it doesn't do very often. Mm. Okay, I see now. So where are we? That's right. So... This is where I believe they've returned to base camp and Barb remembers that she had followed Tagana there. And Tagana, of course, you know, ups the ante and says, uh, no, 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 you didn't. I've, I've never, never been there before. And this, of course, sets up the primary conflict of the rest of the serial. Marco gets very upset at all this and decides that you know he's gonna split up besties susan and ping cho and then they proceed uh on to the next town yep they go by the great wall of Cathay. they yes they do <laughs> and just sort of go around it yep <laughs> which in marco polo's original journals he apparently never mentions this is actually a big deal to historians is proof that this can't possibly have happened <laughs> <laughs> oh, interesting we learn that the doctor is continuing to work on his ship when he can but reveals to the gang when they went to go get Barbara from the cave. Uh-oh, Ping Cho knows about the key now. Wonder where this is going. Roll eyes. We begin at this point to observe the burgeoning friendship of Ping Cho and Susan, and we feel bad for them getting split up. Barb and Ping Cho spend a little bit of time talking about Marco being such a jerk. Ping Cho reveals that she totally knows about them working on the TARDIS, and all she wants in return is for Susan to say goodbye. And the episode so it is moving glacially slowly at this point. <laughs> There's a lot of talking. Uh, it's almost as if the setting doesn't matter. Only like the, the fact that they're somebody's prisoners kind of matters. But it's definitely like you would expect with all these swords being bandied about that there would be a lot more swashbuckling than there actually is. In fact, there's almost none. Mostly it's just people talking. Well, it's, it's part- kind of loaded here in the back end of the serial with the with all of the swashes being buckled. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to some buckling of swash. This is also the one with a different director. This is the fill-in director covering uh, the weekend everything oh my god it makes so much sense okay i got you now. that may be responsible for a lot and also all the actors spent this entire week really annoyed that they had a new script to learn at about eight minutes notice oh that's uh, right that's that was right. this episode <laughs> okay well now we've got a bit more context this is also where they, so they make it to the next city and then Tagana kind of sneaks off creepily and Ping Cho becomes Sherlock Holmes for a little bit which I was very impressed with by the way she's like wait a minute when we showed Tagana the handkerchief he said did you find it in the passageway but if he'd never been there before how would he have known it was a passageway? But of course, Marco's just like, oh, you foolish child. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am not at all convinced by your logic. And also, I wasn't there. So yeah. Also, handkerchiefs can't be plot points. Othello won't be written for 300 years. Right. <laughs> so Tagana goes to meet um, 
oh god i i just wrote brocho because i couldn't remember like his name like it's mentioned like once so i just like chenchu is that right it's was it whoever he met at the cave it's like the leader of the bad people band is that guy named akumat that's right that's That's right right? yeah it's akumat so he goes to meet Akamat and they talk about how they're just uh, how you know he can totally kill everybody and so Tagana's hatches once again a plan that is much more complicated than it needs to be about how he's gonna hold a torch aloft and then Akamat is gonna come back and just they're just gonna kill everybody and he's totally cool with that and he's he's gonna kill the doctor with a stake <laughs> yep stake right through the heart for that magician <laughs> That, that is pretty weird. He's some kind of Dracula. The thing is that the, 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 the Chinese vampires are like super different. Uh, most of them are just like uh, you know reanimated corpses, and and they only walk like you know jumping from one place to another. And are they uh, most the of ones the time, who are OCD about counting. Yes, exactly. Those. So uh, you can drop rice, I think, and they yeah, have to count yeah. every grain. Right, and don't they have to like? Don't they also like hold their arms out in front of them? In front something? of them, yep. Okay, because cool. they've got rigor mortis. Yeah, but anyway, right. I think that we could all agree that in 12th century Mongolia, Bram Stoker's Dracula was one of the most popular books ever written. <laughs> that's true. One of, that's one of the things that still growth broke to China, you know? That's uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. I thought we were still in somewhere around Kazakhstan. Oh, my God. So anyway, um, <laughs> he's going to stake the doctor. Cut to doctor. He's almost done with the TARDIS, and then they can go home and... He has the, you know, he has the copy of his key at this point. So they're so close. And I was, I remember thinking to myself, mm, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> like I can see four episodes looming in front of me here. So he's just going to make the final fixes, but uh, guess who sees him? The man who's everywhere. That's Tagana. So then there's a bunch of scurrying around where Barb and Susan, they see Tagana. And then they go tell an Ian and Ian talks to Marco and Barb and Susan go back. And then at some point they get captured and there's all this running around. And it doesn't really matter because Tagana narcs on the doctor yeah it's like marco demands that the doctor gives him the key and the doctor's like no you'll have to use force to get it so tagana just grabs it from him yeah or yeah that's it <laughs> minimal force but still you force. don't have to use force oh oh you did there it is there yeah. it is okay right and so marco then he doubles down on his being a jerk and now everyone's prisoners and they're totally captured in a tent yep and of course any attempts to steal the Khan's caravan will be punishable by death. Marco is definitely, you know, he's had enough of the shenanigans. So I'm going to put them in a totally impenetrable canvas room and we can just leave them alone because now they're trapped in there. But uh oh, that's not true. They hatch a plan like they do. Which basically all starts with Ian breaking some plates. That's what it was. That's what it was. I saw him cutting the way. I remember he broke a plate in anger and I was like, all right, you know, simmer down, honey. He's going to be okay. That's some fine china he's breaking. (laughs) (laughs) Fine cafe. Sorry. Right. Which he uses to cut his way out of the tent and, you know, he's sneaking over there. And like, this is in my notes. I'm like, what does he teach again? Like, (laughs) like, (laughs) well, at least it's not a bone from a charnel ground, right? Right. That's true. But this is, uh uh-oh, we have our first death. The guard is dead. 
and we transition to the rider from Shang Tu. So yeah, we we've had a couple of bandits, like a couple of Mongols. This guy dies, so we haven't been doing a good job with our ding counter so far. The serial, have we? Oh no, I'm sorry. Yeah. That's our ding. Yeah. It's Deadzo. <laughs> so the writer from Shang Tu, we have our bandit friends and they're planning how they're going to kill everybody. So Ian goes and he tells everybody about the guard and Tagana goes to make his move. And well, but Ian, he's spotted. That's true. Ian, well, see, Ian attempts to warn Marco and then they, they begin to prepare and then they find Tagana making his preparations. And so the awkward defenses begin again. But of course, there's really nothing to defend. I mean, he's just, he's just letting it torch after all right so he says there's totally no bandits there's not going to be any bandits and they become convinced that there's going to be bandits coming so we'll blow up some bamboo and scare them off this is another moment where you kind of get that after school special science (laughs) lesson thing you know like well the thermal expansion will cause these to burst it's quite terrifying right kids (laughs) <laughs> so set fire to bamboo, kids. That's really the lesson we're trying to teach you here. Let's put it's a skull great. on a torch. Burn things. Burn them. I was half expecting him to be like, now don't stand too close to this, Marco, because when it goes off, there could be splinters. Because that's what happens when wood that's wet burns, right? But n- no, they just they just throw a bunch on the fire. And we return to the bandits who have decided that they're going to attack at high moon because you know forget that tagana's plan we're getting bored they are and like don't they make some crack about tagana being like old they well, just, he is you constantly know. terrified of ghosts like some <laughs> old lady it's uh, they said something like uh, you know he probably went to bed early oh <laughs> we'll kill everybody anyway so they continue to prepare the bamboo explosion and tagan is just like come on this is obviously you know just these guys making stuff up there are no bandits and so of course that's when the bandits choose to attack and tagan right, is just right. like oh what fresh hell is this well there's like there is a brief moment before that where uh like i believe ian admits to marco oh yeah no i was totally i was totally gonna hold you hostage like clearly <laughs> yeah <laughs> I just Sorry, I want dude. you to trust me by telling you that I was going to hold you hostage. Honestly, you know, that's good, right? No. Yeah. So the bandits show up and then they're fighting and... Fighting we can't see. We just hear some, you know, clash, clash, clang. This, right. this is really one of those moments where I wish that we had some footage because it really would have been cool to see all of the characters engaged in a battle. You really only get metal on metal. And so you can kind of imagine something along the lines of the first serial in, in the Cave of Skulls. You know, the thing I forgot to do that I meant to do when I saw that scene and i will definitely do it is i wanted to go and view that cgi version and see how they handled that <laughs> oh i you know i watched that one and it's pretty funny because it's almost like some jrpg you know like somebody takes right. a swing and the other one blocks and then the other one takes a swing and he blocks oh, please tell me numbers appear over their heads <laughs> <laughs> i wasn't imagining it more like you know when you're a kid and but you're like you're you you're too cheap to have like anything that's articulated. Like, so just like arm, you just like, like those green army men, you just kind of slap them together. That's kind of what I was imagining. This is but, very awkward and mechanical. So the fighting happens, and then Tagana kills Bro Akamat, right? Yep, he brings his hit point counter down to zero. Yeah. <laughs> and then the bamboo fortuitously explodes at exactly the right moment, and everybody scoots. It yep. was super effective. 
Now who's afraid of ghosts, bandits? Ian sets fire to bamboo to startle people a lot. He's clearly a professional. He's done this dozens of times. He knows how to time it. Yeah. Otherwise, it would be silly. I'm just, you know, can we talk for a bit a second just about, like, I feel bad for Ian once he, you know, once he finally, like, parts ways with the doctor. Like, his, he's just gonna, his life is gonna be so boring. He's, what is he, he's just gonna drink himself into a stupor. And, like, oh, remember when we went through time, you know, (laughs) I fought Mongols. No, okay. fired a thing. Remember when I punched some cavemen and punched some Daleks and punched some Mongols? And taunted some Thals for not being violent enough? (laughs) Yeah. Those stupid pacifists. <laughs> in their yeah, like, utopia. Where does he go from here? Right. <laughs> you know, back to his bachelor pad. But anyway. He so, could teach at a military school and punch some students. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, he can be that guy that the doctor revisits, you know, in a later series, although they'll have to probably find somebody else to play him. But anyway, so everybody's captured again. He's still around. Is he? But at this point, like he's kind of reduced to like you know, the Tom Baker kind of coming back as an old man role, you know? Ironically, like a couple of other cast members, he plays the doctor a fair amount. That's awesome. Okay, never mind. That's awesome. That makes up for everything. I was reading something about this particular serial, and they were, the writer of the article was pointing out that Ian is really the hero in this you know, it's it's based around the doctor, but the doctor kind of like thumbs his nose at the local cultures. He calls the Mongols a bunch of savages. I think even just uh, in the previous episode, you know. Well, he calls Marco Polo a savage, too. He's cranky and crotchety, and it's just kind of funny that it's it's built around the doctor. Well, and that, to me, that, that kind of typifies, the, at least for me, the first doctor so far, right? Like, despite the fact that we are watching watching Doctor Who, I almost forget it sometimes, you know, because it it doesn't it doesn't really feel, you know, it, it, this is still the first Doctor, right? Like, this is the first time somebody's even played this role. There's not a lot of history there. They're still kind of running with the crotchety old time traveler story. So he's, it doesn't feel like the show's about him yet at all. Like, And they really go out of their way in this story in particular to make sure that everyone and the core cast has something to do and that there are parts of it where they are this character we focus on. Even more so, you feel badly for Ian because his usual job is half the time taken up by Marco Polo. Well, I mean, I don't I don't know. Barbara hardly gets a role. That's true. And as I was about to say, Susan as well. Susan mostly functions to get captured and to be buds with Pincho. Hey, <laughs> we are and about screen. to enjoy five solid minutes of Susan meticulously nicknaming goldfish let's not reject that ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes reverting that's great tv man. <laughs> the time-honored female lead tradition of talking about who's who in the fish pond it's a trope now sure every show does it but <laughs> this is really groundbreaking stuff so marco they're still prisoners you know like you are when you admit to somebody that you were totally going to hold them hostage so that you could take that thing they want but he asks them super nice not to escape please and restores all of their privileges so of course um i can't think of a good uh, portmanteau of susan and pincho but that gets to reform and tagana you know makes more threats and he storms out at one point 
And then that's when the gang begins to figure out Tagana's plan a little bit. I think the doctor is first to call something out. Apart from the two episodes that Barbara has just spent yelling arbitrarily into the wind about it. Yeah, but Barbara is a woman. Right. You you raise a good point. And this is also where Barbara finally remembers that she saw... What was his name again? I, I, see, I wrote it down, but then I threw it away because <laughs> Brocho. Barbara identifies Brocho, and she knows who he is. And then I guess nobody really cares. <laughs> yeah, it's like quiet, Barbara. Men are talking. There are the characters we meet along the way through this story. Are how do I put this? Not really that well defined and easy to tell apart as time passes. Well, especially because like there's no mannerisms to tell everybody apart, and yeah, we don't really center on any side character for more than you know just a couple seconds. And also, like a lot of them are really, um, I mean, I don't want to say racist, but racist and like kind of over the they're like really overdone i don't know i'd say that for 1960s television the racial aspects for the most part are underplayed i was actually impressed by how less racist than i thought it was going to be oh yeah certainly and for the most part with the exceptions of some makeup that we are all cringing at most of the historical doctor who stories aren't that racist but at the same time sometimes racism is supplanted by something much weirder like that one guy at a way station who overacts so hard it can be seen from space oh we'll we'll get to him yeah well we'll we'll get to captain racism of this episode later so but at this point we are introduced to the what i can only assume is the titular rider who is a courier and everybody spends a little while talking about like what a badass he is with horses because he rode for like a bunch of days it was like 300 miles after leaving the city the day before or something right and they swap out horses and it's like well, wait okay but do you did you just Where'd you get all those the horses? Were they like at way stations? That's not explained, but that's just how I chose to interpret it. Like they just have horse way stations. So this one guy can just kind of. That was literally what Chinese infrastructure was at the time. That's what Kublai Khan set up. The ability to send messages that quickly by doing so that. So we have our historical accuracy for the day. That's clearly another educational moment because that, you know, there is, you know, they definitely made a lot of hay about how that guy was from the Northern steppes and riding was in his blood and you know he could ride totally far because they could swap horses in and out so yeah that makes sense this is this was their historical moment another one they just didn't really hammer on it as hard as they had with some of the other points they've made right so he says that Kublai Khan totally needs to see Marco Polo right away which I I guess is somehow more urgent than the fact that they were already on their way to see Marco Polo and they make their way to the white city also called Ching Ting. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's what I've got written down. Okay. I wrote it in haste that I, I was really reluctant to say that because it it really does sound bad. (laughs) I mean, I hope it just sounds like something like a lot of the names in this serial sound like something that somebody made up. So I didn't, I, I'm sure that because this is Doctor Who, there is a lot of historical accuracy. But in this one in particular, I was like, "Are they? Is that really what it's called?" Okay, good. Well, they, I mean, uh, if we are going, if we're going to be like um, anally retentive, uh, then the the name it's actually Xing Ding. So, um, okay. so that's that's that that's how it is. Xing Ding. Xing Ding. Okay. So it's, uh, it's, the... it's 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 spelled with Z and H. Xing okay. Ding. 
Well, because in the serial, I, I caught a glimpse of it on the like the map screen, and it was they they definitely spelled it Ching Ting. So I wanted to make sure. Well, I mean, the, with with uh, Mandarin, at least it's undergone different transliteration right. uh, shifts over time. So right, and every single place we're talking about would have had Mandarin names, local names, Westernized names to a degree. Um, there are a lot of different names they could be going with for any given place here. Mm. Where they meet the moon-faced, goofy... I can only imagine that his physical performance... This is definitely something that I'm sad we didn't get to see. But I can only imagine that his physical performance was just as goofy as the voice that he used. I don't know. I'm kind of glad we didn't get to see the (laughs) hilariously named Wang Lo. Oh, that was his name. Wang Low. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. I feel really badly that they all, the BBC also lost the random production of the Mikado this guy wandered in from. And it was going so well, too, without, you know, the, quote, comedy Chinaman. That's true. Yeah. I, I de- You could definitely, t- like, either somebody told him, yeah, like, you know, you really need, this is where the funny should be. Or he just came on and was like, well, let's be here to play my role, you know? I don't know about you guys, but I was listening through headphones and I'm like, I need to turn my treble down. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where, of course, we get to hang out with Sujin and Pink Cho a little bit more and where they play their game of talking about who is which fish which is a riveting scene. And I mean, it's it's cute, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it's still a much better scene than the entirety of the episode, The Ordeal from the Daleks. So <laughs> <laughs> on the one hand, it is ridiculous. And on the other hand, it is something we never get to see in Doctor Who, a quiet moment of people just having fun in each other's company. And one of the best scenes Susan gets in her entire time on the show. On the other hand, they're just standing around nicknaming goldfish. <laughs> I do think that that's one thing that we maybe aren't appreciating enough, right? Because later this is, I mean, later on in the series, it's just going to get wacky. But for now, the series takes its time. People, it's very, very British, you know, people hang out and look into fish ponds and name people because that's what they think. You know, I don't think that's a British thing. I, I imagine that the British just sit around all the time and, you know, compare their friends to tea bags. Well, I was referring mostly to like British television, you know, uh, at least the whole Eddie Izzard man walks into a room and, oh, I didn't realize that you were arranging matches, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it very much takes its time. The nature of fandom being what it is, like, it's just kind of striking that in the 60s, obviously, you wouldn't necessarily have this, but these days you just have like tumblers full of art of all of the characters as fish in all of the rest of the episodes you know wow. also yeah and fishes who are also disney princesses for some reason okay <laughs> also susan F- ping show fan fiction oh, oh yeah i mean absolutely. i looked it up oh and, and just is... imagine just imagine the deviant art oh man I have looked, I, I did a quick Google search. There is Susan Ping Cho fan fiction. I am never going to read it, but it exists. Yeah, no, that has to be scary. But anyway, this fish naming scene is important because it establishes, you know, these two, they're friends, they're getting close. And at the end, Ping does say she knows where Marco keeps the key to the TARDIS. 
but she promised not to tell anybody. And Susan accepts this. Which is, on the one hand, very sweet. On the other hand, don't you, Susan, don't you want to go home? (laughs) She's tired of being a prisoner. Maybe just, you know, push her a little bit. But instead, Susan's just like, no, yeah, I'm totally cool with that. You got to keep your word. Yeah, we'll just, you know, maybe we'll die. But that's fine. We'll just sit here and name more fish. I thought it was kind of a nice moment. And, you know, who knows? Maybe uh, Ping Cho wouldn't have told her if she hadn't established the trust. That's true. Yeah. And if she had pushed, that's true. Yeah. So they finish playing. Name that fish. You know, I think one of the things that is most meaningful about this scene is they talk about they both share a bond over missing their home. You know, Pink Cho misses Samarkand and Susan misses the as of yet unnamed place where she is from. And so that's, yeah, that's important. As much as we've been making fun of it, it's a very nice character scene. And I think we all should congratulate ourselves. We've gotten through this entire discussion without at any point making a joke about everyone playing coy. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> You oh, monster. That was I I am. So we move on. <laughs> we shall. So it's as at this point that we cut to Tagana hanging out with a creepy creep creep show in the stable. Yep, and... the creepy one-eyed man who I couldn't tell if his name was Kuji or Kaiju or something, but I just imagine he's a 60-story tall monster. So Let us just call him Tute Lemcow, the yeah. Scandinavian dance instructor who plays their sinister Arab men. Yep. <laughs> was the monkey real? Because I could yep. not tell. Is this oh, the monkey? Yeah. That's was this the, the monkey? monkey. Yep. This oh, is the problem man. monkey? of the stench. Yes, oh, that's this amazing. is the monkey of the fleas and the stench that and the urinating monkey. everywhere. Hate the stank monkey. That is so... That's even and funnier. The biting. That's even funnier to me now, given how like little role the monkey plays in the story. <laughs> the scourge of the series. It was not in any way a trained animal. Someone just brought a random wild monkey in there and hoped it would sit on an actor's shoulder. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> I wouldn't want that monkey it... anywhere near my face. Right, right. And then they sent it home with Carol Ann Ford afterwards. Did they really? <laughs> oh, that's so funny. In all seriousness, it is 55 years later, and if he is still doing conventions, and I think he is, Darren Nesbitt will, when asked about this story, primarily complain about that monkey. <laughs> they <laughs> really just wanted you to say, 55 years later, that monkey is still biting people and pissing on everything. It's still on his back. <laughs> <laughs> Because like I didn't even it didn't even click with me because we spent we spent a good deal of time before talking about this this awful monkey and like when I saw it for the first time it didn't even occur to me I was it like oh it's the monkey so problem. small right it's so small and it doesn't do anything and it's barely there <laughs> well apparently the biggest problem was that it got terrified by the lights and hit up in the lighting rig <laughs> in the one place where you couldn't see the lights. It's warm up there and the lights are in the other direction. So naturally it spent a lot of time making the heat sources smell drastically worse. Oh, that's awesome. That's <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, if you're trying to figure out a way to get out of the worst studio imaginable, then I can't imagine a better way than making the studio unlivable. That's fair. Design did that already. Yeah. And, and we are several stories away from the horse still. Um, <laughs> it's a hot box. It's lousy with stank monkeys. Oh, it's too good. narrow to do almost anything in. So, the stank monkey. Well, 
So Tigana cuts his deal with Creepy Cho, who wants gold, to, I guess, abscond with the TARDIS. And he makes his plans and moves on. Meanwhile, Ping Cho has decided that she is going to go ahead and take those keys and give them to Susan because she feels so bad about everything. Because Ping Cho is smart and she discovered her loophole. She only promised not to tell anybody where the keys were. She didn't promise not to steal the keys and give it to them. Real friendship. Actually, one uh, awkward side note of that vow of hers is that it took me a couple of times. I had to go back and watch the sequence twice to realize, oh, it's hidden inside Marco's journal. That's actually a really clever way to make the whole narrative conceit of the story a major plot point that they don't bother to spell out in dialogue. So as we couldn't tell really clearly what's going on with the fiddling with small objects in the telesnaps, that wasn't clear. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, the journal has, you know, a real purpose. Yeah. That's true. That's a good point. So they decide at dinner that they're just going to scoot right then. And this is where Ian really cranks up the action Ian a notch and pretends to be drunk and then judo chops the guard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at least I think that's what happened. Like, again, this is from still frames, but it sure looked like he he got the, he gave the guard some wine and then just judo chopped him. Yeah. Hopefully in a, in a Captain Kirk like kind of move. Right. Right. Exactly. And this is, this is definitely where I thought they were smooth sailing, or at least I'm sure the audience at home did. I, on the other hand, was like, uh, I think we got a couple more episodes. So I think I know where this is going, but it sure looked like they were. contrivance. <laughs> and they get back to the TARDIS and they're about to scoot, but Susan has left to go say goodbye to Ping Cho, making a unilateral decision that threatens the group. And guess what happens, you guys? I can't possibly imagine. She's captured and it's Tagana and he gets her and it's just terrible. And then that is the end of that episode and it's very dramatic and completely unexpected did we get a horrible susan screech out of it i don't remember no i just uh um, oh wow i think <laughs> she's just captured so this moves us on to the mighty kubla khan tigana chokehold susan back to the tardis and uses it as leverage to get everybody to come out and marco polo is very cross with everyone and ian attempts to reason with him but nope it's not gonna happen and tagana tries to kill him to clean up his mess and susan just ugh, ruins everything yeah so i have a quick question Yep. Is at this point after six episodes, is Marco Polo more some kind of high school vice principal who's constantly disappointed in these in, in the kids who are making trouble, or is he the crusty dean from a fraternity movie? I can't tell. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's tough to say. I mean, like I definitely found myself wondering aloud a few times why he wasn't just like, you know what, throw these people in the desert. Like this is just too much <laughs> trouble. <laughs> just, well, but I mean. The only person he really needs, I think, is the doctor. I mean, he needs Sagana, but, you know, the, the rest of these folks are just trouble. Yeah, but, you know, wh while Marco has a tendency to throw the occasional temper tantrum, he's overall, you know, a nice fella. He's not just going to murder these people after stealing their caravan. Well, and that definitely does come back to haunt him later, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So, Ian cops to stealing the keys 
so that Ping Cho does not take the fall. And they travel north, and Marco Polo's just distraught. Can't believe those guys tried to steal my keys. Barb asks Ian to try and reason with Marco Polo, and this is where Ian reveals to Marco Polo that he is from England in the future. This moment kind of surprised me, because I was like, wait, there are rules about these things. You can't just go around telling everybody you're a time traveler. Well, I mean, it's not like they were trying too hard to conceal that, considering Barbara was occasionally making references to historical moments. And, you know, the doctor was just like, hey, when and where are we? Yeah, I right. mean, I guess it's just like you at least have plausible deniability. It's like we're not creating a butterfly effect, are we? Eh. Well, and what I found interesting about this is like, I, this is where I kind of got excited. I was like, because Marco reveals to Ian that, you know, if you're going to like lie to me about the keys, because I totally know Ping Cho did it, then how can I trust you? And, you know, I said, well, if I did believe you, then I just give you these keys right now. And I was totally thinking like, oh, okay, is this going to be like a Barbara's time to shine? Is this going to be like a Back to the Future moment? Back to the Future 2, I should say. I thought that they were going to, be like, okay, well, what battles are going on right now? Okay, well, I'll, this is who's going to win it in the next few weeks or something like that. Or or make make more immediate predictions about the world, but that never happens. And instead, I, uh, I don't understand why they don't just use the convincer and, look, just have the doctor show you inside. Or more importantly, which I kept wondering often over and over again, Marco Polo says, oh, you know, I want to give this to Kubla Khan so that he'll let me go home. Why don't they just take him home to TARDIS? Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> like Bill and Ted him. Right. <laughs> See also the logic of why don't they just take Ping Cho with them? Yeah. But here's why they won't take Marco Polo home with them. Because has the doctor shown any evidence that he has any idea whatsoever how to actually get that TARDIS to where he wants it to go? <laughs> all right, all right. That's fair. I, I was just remembering back to a line from some of the previous episodes. Is, d didn't he mention that his brother and his father also want to go home? Yes, they are in the same position as Marco. He just happens to be the one who wrote everything down. But his, he and those two other family members of his were in the historical story anyway, just as much court hostages slash indentured servants as Marco Polo was. It's, okay. it's easy to forget them because they're not on screen. Yeah, it's easy to forget Scott and Darko Polo. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever their names were, I don't even know. So uh, instead of attempting to prove literally anything to Marco Polo, like maybe even just taking him inside the TARDIS and being like, don't you steal this future stuff? Woo! Instead, no, we get more period drama. Ping Cho scoots because she, I guess, is afraid of getting persecuted for key theft, I guess, is why she leaves. Does anybody remember why she left? It's partially that, partially because of the whole marriage thing. Right. And right, so right. she's just like, you know, I'm out of here. Right. Because earlier it seemed like she was more resigned to that fate, but I guess it's, we're meant to assume that her time with Susan and Barbara has changed her mind about that so ian it is discovered that ping cho has left and ian offers to go get her and you know there's some back and forth about why he shouldn't do that that nobody cares about and he goes meanwhile ping cho arrives back to hang out with uh back with wang lo well but first she runs into creep cho who yep. arrives to be creepy and talk about a caravan and she asks if she can go and he's like yeah totally yeah just give me your money 
piece. Yeah, because something that's important that I don't think we mentioned is that at this point, the TARDIS has been left behind to follow later since, you know, they're rushing to Kublai Khan now. So right. all the baggage has been left behind. That's true. And it is, as we have mentioned, Creepshow's job is to get the TARDIS. And this is where all that's supposed to go down. So Ping Cho talks to Lo Wang. Wang, was it? Wang, Wang Lo. Lo. Oh my God. <laughs> Wang Lo. And he is super upset. <laughs> and he conveys that through all the nuanced acting talent at his command. <laughs> what? You gave your money to a bandit? What? <laughs> yeah. I, the, Silly we're girl. all thinking of the same old-time Hollywood actor with this guy, aren't we? Yes. <laughs> the one The Simpsons made fun of forever. Yep. I can't remember his name. Yes, like, two for dinner? Yes. <laughs> uh, Always made her D's and store clerk. Yes. I think you mean yes? Yes. Wikipedia has come through quickly. Uh, it wasn't Marco's brother. It was his father and his father's brother. And his father's uh-huh. name, wonderfully was Niccolo Polo. Oh, that's pretty good. It's not as good as Darko Polo, but it'll do. I assume that was his uncle's name. Matteo, according to Wikipedia, but there you go. <sighs> Somebody so... go on to Wikipedia and change it to Darko. <laughs> Darko Polo. <laughs> Donnie Darko Polo. So into the middle of the Ping Cho exchange, Ian arrives, whereupon he learns about Creepcho. And I mean, because what we didn't talk about is that moments before Creepshow had given fake documents regarding his stewardship of the TARDIS to Wanglo, and then he scoots off. But uh-oh, the real steward shows up, and that's when we find out that Wanglo has been duped. And I just imagine that we missed a hilarious triple take. <laughs> oh no! I assume maybe even comedy fainting. <laughs> How could I, Chinese master of my fate, have been taken? for a rube. Further north, Tagana, ever the busybody. Well, he wants to go find Ping Cho and Marco says, no, man, I need you for con purposes. You're the you're the guy. You're the, the broker. And then Tagana begins to sow some pretty heavy discord here. This is where he is perhaps his most Machiavellian, where he forces the women to admit that they're dirty, bra-burning, child-marriage-opposing feminists or whatever, and they, you know, eager to defend their moral positions. Of course, you know, all of us feel that way about Ping Cho's marriage. And, you know, Marco's like, what? So he says, yeah, Tagana, go get him. Yeah, because, you know, obviously Ian believes the same thing. So he wouldn't have gone back for the girl. He obviously went back for the magic flying caravan. That's true. Yeah, he doesn't give a crap about Ping Cho. But it turns out he totally does. And like, Yes, he, you know, cares about Ping Cho by saying, no, Ping Cho, I'm going to have to take you back because you're getting child brided. Right. So we, you know, Marco can't trust Ian. So Tagana gets to go after them. It's weird to me that on multiple occasions, Marco would just allow a guy who's, I mean, he's an emissary, but I couldn't help thinking of him as kind of like a, a almost a prisoner. Tagana is there to kind of negotiate a peace for no guy. He's supposed to be humbled by the Khan. And this is a really important guy that Marco's got to get to the capital. And on two separate occasions, he just lets him go off. And, like, I, I guess he, he first went to the, the bandit camp and then went back after Ian into situations that are 
you know, potentially dangerous. Well, at least he does try to refuse him once, and it's it's right, it's actually right here where Tagana wants to go get Ping Cho, but Marco's like, nah, you're pretty important to this kind of peace deal thing. And then so Tagana has to think quickly on his feet and sort of set Marco Polo against their new guests. So Ping Cho and Ian, they talk about, well, they're going to go find the TARDIS. And this is where we finally get to meet <laughs> the great Kublai Khan. Kowtow before his gaze. Right. <laughs> and I, this is, this is clearly intended to be, I guess, the funniest part of the episode, even beyond Wang Low. Wang Low. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know they're they're making all of this hubbub about how the great con is coming and you know everybody needs to bow before him and the doctor refuses hilariously to do so which is amazing to me like this is con era china like you're gonna get your head chopped off if you don't if but you're totally, lucky yeah and he totally, i was kind of surprised that he got away with not even like a slap on the wrist really right i thought they were just gonna impale him at any second but the con comes in and meanwhile the doctor's trying to bow because you know he's old and decrepit and the con comes in and turns out oh the con is also old and decrepit and complains about his goiter <laughs> oh, his, his gout, gout right, right. and his knees and his just about everything while the doctor's all like my back is broken yeah i'm unwell i've been riding all day I, I said in my notes it's like the doctor and the con are having an old off hey as well, a gout uh, sufferer uh, i feel representation is very important but uh <laughs> Was that a lawn misread, by the way, by Hartnell? I think he had said something like, I'm far from unwell. Mm, yeah, maybe. It seems perfectly believable. <laughs> so the old con comes in and informs everybody that Tagana's master is being shady and, and like moving his armies a little bit too close to the city. But meanwhile, the doctor and the con become old bros and they kind of <laughs> forge a Susan Ping Cho kind of parallel friendship. I, I do really love the exchange where the con asks him if his medical qualifications can do much for him right. and that <laughs> yeah that is literally the first time in a show where this is going to come up another 50 times that the doctor gets challenged on his medical credentials and finds some way out of it mm -hmm. and it's a really good one too it's really a lovely moment of performance I, I thought it was funny because he's like i'm not a medical doctor but back then i don't were there other kinds of doctors right i, I was like the con's not going to understand what you're talking about man so they begin to have a mutual appreciation for the other's crusty decrepitude and they hobble out arm in arm that's my favorite part <laughs> it's also the first person in the show the doctor treats as an equal right yeah. i thought it was kind of a cool moment when he's bonding with the con because i was like oh finally you know the the doctor who's been kind of ailing through this particular serial gets to maybe play the the hero and maybe you know working with the con is going to get them all out of this mess i was really very hopeful at this point and especially later but before we get to that ian and Ping Cho run across Creepcho in the woods, and Ian performs what I can only picture as yet another judo chop, and <laughs> he roughs him up a little bit and, and finds out the plan, and then, uh-oh, Sagana, the man who's everywhere, shows up. But something interesting happens here that I, I, I remember kind of being surprised at. Ian's like, I'll kill this guy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was I was surprised because, I mean, at this point, after that sword fight, Ian very well might have killed a Mongol, but he's not that 
violent a person. At right. least it it didn't seem that way. He's Meanwhile, had a long day, and conditions in the studio were degenerating rapidly. Yeah, he's confronted. <laughs> there was a monkey. I mean, you know, Ian's fine with punching people and the occasional monkey, but flat out murdering somebody. I don't know, man. All it takes is one look from Tagana, and he is like, "I will spill this man's blood into the <laughs> dusty soil." And Tagana's like, "Whatever, man, go for it." Yeah. <laughs> That's not even the first dude I've killed today. <laughs> it's interesting to me that as a weapon, Tagana's most effective tool is his absolute contempt for almost everyone around him. He has <laughs> nothing but contempt for Marco Polo. He has nothing but contempt for Captain Eyepatch or for Ian. And that has been serving him in good stead. His biggest problem has been the fact that the doctor on some level, he knows he can't compl- it's not a great plan to mess with the doctor directly. Mm-hmm. In the same way that he can't mess with Khan directly. Right. And this, incidentally, represents our cliffhanger before the assassin at Peking. So we open with Tagana wanting to fight Ian, and we're gonna we're wondering what Ian's gonna do. I mean, at this point, I was half expecting Ian to just be a surprise sword master and just, you know, gut. Tagana right there because he's just been so surprising up until now. Not this week. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, the Khan's guard arrives and they just, you know, Creepshow tries to get away and they just cut him down. So that's it for him. Conveniently. I mean, Ian just punched that monkey straight into the sun earlier. So (laughs) maybe that's why Ian was so eager to actually you know, uh, commit murder because he had already tasted blood when he murdered that monkey. He could smell the monkey on his shoulder. That's what it was. Yeah, he could smell the monkey in the lighting, Rick. God, I imagine they all were smelling like monkey for weeks after this cereal. Oh, yep. <laughs> Sounds so miserable. <laughs> they have actively confirmed, no, that that's true. I'm sure that Darren Nesbitt is still taking like 20 showers a day trying to get the stench of monkey off of his soul. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that Ian's costume from this story gets held over until the next story, and that apparently still reeked of monkey. Good. I'm going to have to take note of that so that I can watch it and make sure that I'm watching the next episode with that in mind. So there, it's off to see the wizard, right? The guards are in no position to judge Tagana here, and so it's off to see Kublai Khan, right? So this is where we cut back to Peking, and the doctor is just old bro backgammon with Kublai Khan, and it took me a moment to realize it, but they were talking about like hundreds of or thousands of tigers and resources and stuff and it turns out that this is like half of china that the doctor is just one in backgammon no no the oh. entire economic output of burma for a year <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I felt like that was a, a kind of a good way to also show the the reach of the mongol empire mm-hmm. at this point and, and a great line well not only that i, I was thinking about games in the context of this serial because it came up at another point where marco and ian are sitting around and playing chess i think that's when the girls get lost in the shifting sand singing sands sorry so you have games feature twice and kind of work to connect characters who are they come from like different times and kind of different attitudes and and everything and sometimes they're actually you know like 
maybe playing a chess game because Ian and Marco, they don't necessarily trust each other. They're they're both trying to get something out of the other at different points in the story. I, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting that we've connected characters from across time with classic games like that. And they do it multiple times in the story. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's a, it's a deliberate device that's in there to show, well, I mean, there's a lot of political gamesmanship that's going on in the background of the story, too. A lot of the characters are literal game pieces to some of the others. Mm. Marco is, Ping Cho is. Yeah, it's a sophisticated analysis. And you've got to deal with the fact that it's a very indirect sort of game because I mean, it's, I'm trying to think if there's another Doctor Who story ever where the main villain of the story just never appears on screen at all. Mm. Tagana's boss is mentioned a lot, but they don't turn up. That's true. But I mean, then is he really the villain at that point or is he more like a looming natural disaster almost you know what i mean like he's more like a a a thing that's gonna happen i guess is that that's just kind of how i read it but he didn't seem terribly important at all like i thought it was interesting that yeah you're right like he's never he's never shown and i i have to admit the the game analogy did not occur to me in that way because i'm not sophisticated so this is where the doctor wagers the tardis on backgammon and this is where i think okay all right, it's in the bag now, right? Like, this is how they're getting out of here. It's definitely going out with a whimper. Marco Polo is just gobsmacked at this. It's like, I, you mean I traveled all this way and he's never even going to, like, look at my totally sweet gift. It's, he's so depressed. And he, he goes and talks to Barbara and Susan about it and then talk about Ping. Because Ping Cho's, like, off crying somewhere about to get child married. And everything seems like it's going to be great, but the courier arrives and tells them nope not so fast tagana is suing he's bringing suit against ian and ping cho for they tried to steal the tardis and then the doctor loses his backgammon (laughs) (laughs) so i was thinking about saving this for later because there's another plot point that they've been building up for a, a little while and it just completely falls apart but this was one where I was like, oh man, it's totally in the bag. They've done everything. They've set it up. It's going to be, you know, the big climactic scene. We've come all the way across Cathay. And despite all of these machinations, you know, he's just going to win it in a high stakes backgammon game. Nope. We set it up for nothing. Yeah, I... I thought that's how it was going to go, <laughs> that that was kind of the message they were going to be saying, because that wouldn't have been too bad, right? Like, you know, all of that... And he just got it by being, it was just the power of friendship, of old man, crusty friendship in the end that wins the, the TARDIS back. And that's how I thought they were going to play it. And I was going to be like, all right, that's kind of clever, right? But, well, and it kind of makes the Doctor more important to this particular story, too. He, he's had some weeks where he is not directly involved in the action much here. So this is where I think the reconstruction kind of fell short for me a little bit, too. And I realize as I'm saying this, that for the most part, when I think about these scenes in my head, I see movement, right? I'm, I'm like, my mind kind of fills in the gaps of what was going on because everything was so incidental, right? But... Some of the important stuff I realize I have no idea like I'm it it's like this hole because it's like clearly it was kind of ambiguous. Like so when the doctor comes out with the paper money that was his consolation prize and he says, Oh, here's my consolation money, he's clearly happy. And then you hear Susan go, Oh, grandfather. It's like, is she sobbing? Cause she should be. Now it sounds like it sounds like she's like, Oh, you, you know, she could be laughing, but I don't know. Is it that it's implying that Hartnell's just lost his grip? Because they do that at one point earlier in the story. That's true. And it's harder to tell here. 
I, yeah, I it, thought he was going to go into wild, maniacal laughter again. Right. Yeah, he's just smiling there with his consolation prize, and Susan makes some kind of sounds that I'm really hoping were despair, because that's what they should have been. But it, it's, it sounds a lot like, it sounds also like they're having a Hanna-Barbera moment, where she's just like, oh, Grandpa. But it's tough to say. We learn that Ian is set to stand trial alone, of course, because Ping Cho is, has been excused by her husband, who's basically begged the con for mercy on her behalf and looks like Ian's going to take the fall for this one. Now, I don't know about the rest of you. The, uh, obviously, this was my first time with this particular serial, but I halfway expected, especially since they were playing up the Khan's age, that it was going to be like, surprise, you're, you know, one of the Khan's wives now or something like that. That the, there was going to be some surprise pull that she was actually marrying the Khan. I yeah. don't know why they wouldn't have said it, but it did kind of surprise me when it's like, oh, no, it's just. Some guy were not even giving a name. Right. I mean, and they did spend a lot of time, too, talking about how it was like an old and influential man, almost like they were trying to keep his old and influential identity a secret, but no, nah, red herring. So Tigana presents the TARDIS to the con. They're hanging out there. And then for the first time, he begins to sow some discord against Marco Polo. You know, yeah, there's a reason these white people are still alive. And it's because, you know... Marco Polo, he's, he's white, he's probably going to protect them first. And Marco admits to the con that he did want to go home. And the con is like totally upset at this and just wants his prize. And he won it fair and square in a game of high stakes backgammon. Well, it's funny. It's one of the few times that the difference in race among the characters is, is even brought up. It's one of these things that's like there in the background and Tagana is just like, but yet they're all European. Like, of course. Of course he would like life for them. What do you, what do you expect? They're strangers or something. Yeah. There are a lot of things they are careful not to overplay, though. The idea that Kublai Khan is a henpecked husband is a note that they play a little bit with, but they don't overplay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I found myself really wanting to see the Empress's performance, too. Right. Because there aren't a lot of women in this particular serial either. Mm -hmm. Also, the what do we call them? Telesnaps? She's like making some really strange faces. <laughs> yeah. Well, if our much missed friend Wang Lo, I I'm kidding, he's not much missed, uh, <laughs> was one character from the Mikado. She's a specific one. She's Katisha, the daughter-in-law elect. This will be my last Gilbert and Sullivan reference for the evening, I promise. You lie. Wang so, Lo, sweet chariot. Oh, God. <laughs> There's an interesting exchange where Marco Polo gets sent away and the Khan is talking to Tagana one-on-one. He's like, thanks for telling me that, but I'm, I got my eye on you, you know. Because you're so smooth or something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, what he says is, you know, I'm on my guard against you. You have the power of persuasion, which, right. you know, shows that the con is a heck of a lot more. I'm trying to think of the right word. You know, he, he's perceptive. Right, he's, perceptive. He's, savvy. he's a political that, animal. And probably, I mean, in historical terms, one of the best of them that's ever lived. But the story actually, you know, pulls this great trick of pulling the rug out from under us with him multiple times. They expect us to be in awe of him. And then he is a comic figure. And then he is a comic figure who immediately can coexist on the same level as the doctor, a thing that you can count on, on your fingers the number of times in 50 odd years that's happened. Yeah. That's true. I do respect that, how they're very careful 
with certain characters to show that just because you're a you know a caveman or just because you're not from the future and in a magical flying box doesn't mean that you can't be wicked smart and able to affect the story and see things that nobody else can see and be you know kind of a badass and i thought that was pretty cool even if it was just a tiny little moment yeah i mean marco polo spent seven episodes not getting this despite the fact that it was shoved in his face at every possible moment and it took Kublai Khan all of you know five seconds around this guy I thought it was kind of interesting that the whole power dynamic with Marco you know he's in charge of the situation then when you get to Peking Kublai Khan is the center of power and Marco just isn't the hotshot that he made himself out to be. You know, he's going around invoking the Khan's name and authority, but here with the Khan, he's not even the most powerful man in the room after the Khan. Someone like Tagana has plenty more sway. Yeah, and I I I did get the impression, though, and I would like to... Again, this is me seeing like, you know, movement and performances that I only saw from little snapshots. So once again, like tremendous credit to not only the idea to make the telesnaps in the first place, but also the 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 wonderful reconstructions that we've been able to see. Because what I want to say is that his performance did kind of have subtleties in it of him being kind of not entirely sure of like he's he's the leader and everything, but he's not entirely sure, right? You know, he's in control of this expedition, but but, you know, it's things get away from him. He's not completely a master of his own fate. And he is, you know, of course, a kept man after all. So I, I, I do want to credit at least what I perceived to be the subtleties in his performance in that regard. But you're, you're right. It's definitely like a big inversion once in, in just this one episode. Well, and we are just now about to talk about perhaps my favorite moment in the serial, which is where it is revealed that Ping Cho's husband died from taking male enhancement pills. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it was an elixir of mortality. You right, know what I'm it sorry. was. You I'm know sorry. what it was. Of course we do. I'm sorry. I just, I, I lost it. Like I had to pause it. <laughs> I mean, the, the funniest part of it is that it shows that, you know, Chinese culture has been obsessed with male enhancement uh, pills for most of its history. No, I mean, seriously, that's, yeah, that's no, the reason they are, they, are, they are running and they are, uh, you know, getting the uh, black, uh, they got, the, you know, the black rhinoceros extinct. Yeah, that's true. I thought it was a really funny little nod from the series and kind of, you know, risque for the time even. We're talking about the perspective sex life of a 16-year-old girl, which well, I promise you this show is not going to talk about again as a subject, maybe ever. Did they come under any fire for that? No, I think the I, I think the fatal consequence to the dirty old man in question is probably enough. Right, yeah. I thought that was an interesting way to go with it and completely unexpected, but I thought that was just amazing. And so I guess... Kublai Khan gives her the opportunity to go home and once she recovers uh, from the shocking knowledge that her husband-to-be has died from boner pills they learn he has died from that with a smile on his face (laughs) so after that we find out that Ping Cho is given the opportunity to either go home or stay at the court 
And what I thought was interesting was also that given the theme, the multiple threads in this episode of people waxing poetic about their homes and wanting to go back, she chooses to stay. I thought that was very interesting. I suppose the implication is that she is to become a courtesan or something. But The term we're looking for is concubine. That's not what I was going to say, but... I mean, I didn't, I tried to avoid saying it, but yes, that's, that's exactly right. And so, you know, I guess same situation, upgrade, I don't know. It's definitely more, more power. Oh, yes. Right. And I think it's clear in the, the implied scenario that this is a suggestion being made at the very least with the approval of the Khan's head wife, who they even sort of hint that the Empress that may have been her idea. Mm, I see. That's it true. It still has undertones that to us in the here and now, should creep us out big time. I, I thought it was interesting that this is the second time in the episode that they set something up and then I I, I was trying to make a, a, I don't know, baseball, t-ball analogy with that. I mean, it's they don't pay off what they've set up. They kind of whiff it a little mm, bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the doctor's going to win the TARDIS back in a high-stakes game of backgammon. Nope. Nope. Uh, Ping Cho is going to marry this geriatric man. We've heard about it the entire serial. Whoops. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's it's bizarre. And Kublai Khan challenges Marco to go get the key and get the doctor. And on his way out, he runs into Tagana, who is going to meet Kublai Khan for this long-awaited summit. And they kind of confront each other a little bit. This was one of my favorite moments. And, I, you know, it just shows you that Tagana has had Marco pegged since, well, at least for a while now. I was going to say since the beginning. But he says what everybody's been thinking this whole time mm-hmm. yeah i mean you know marco says i underestimated you tagana and tagana comes back with no you overestimated yourself yeah sick burn by the way yeah. Boom. He's, 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 since the first part of this story he has made it very clear he views marco as basically a cat he is not a man at all as far as he's concerned and he has never cared one bit what he thinks that's true we cut back to the gang they're sleuthing out what uh, tagana must be up to and they figure that well gosh like why would his boss be here that's odd you know he must have delayed marco polo to allow his boss to move into position why he must like what why would he do that you know but the Khan's army is much more powerful. Well, he must want to kill the Khan and put, you know, put things into disarray so that his his boss can come in and and you know take over. So that's when they figured out his plan and they must spring into action. They so. realize that gasp, Tagana is the assassin at Peking. Right. <laughs> well, you they, mean he's they've not had to... the script all this time, and now they're putting two and two together. You mean he's up to no good? So, in order to escape, Ian gives a judo sweep. This is where he switches it up. And they, while they're rushing to save the con, the, our, you know, our old friend, the expositional courier comes back to tell them that Tagana's boss has begun to move on the city so clearly the assassination must be set to happen at any moment now kind of interesting things with all of this i mean the doctor comes back to something that he said earlier in the serial about taking out the leader and everything falling into disarray the other thing that i noticed in this particular section was and it's just a function of it being a reconstruction but uh, i think what happened is Ian kind of pantomimes what he's going to do. And if we didn't have those notes, you'd have no idea what he's planning to do to take the guard out. So I was just uh, kind of grateful, I guess, to whoever had put it together. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I feel like I must have seen a judo sweep because if for some reason I'm, I made sure to like underline it. 
that it's a judo sweep this time. And who, you know, who knows? Maybe he just judo tackles him. I'm beginning to suspect that Andy actually has a copy of this serial in his basement somewhere. <laughs> that would be so amazing. It's weird, though. <laughs> Those I do trips see to it. Singapore you've been taking suddenly makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> I think that speaks well to how well the reconstruction was done. I just feel like somebody has to have this. This is almost oh. inconceivable that it's it's not out there somewhere. Mm. Of all of the ones that are missing, this is the one where the most copies were sold. And yeah, it had like nine copies made. It's ridiculous. And this is also the one that has had the most kind of like close calls, right? Like there was a guy in Australia who was rumored to have one. There was that, that fellow we mentioned before who was sitting on the cachet of them in Africa. I feel like there was another one as well. The CBC in Canada spent a fair amount of time being asked to look over and over mm. again. Because, I mean, that, that's a huge amount of the planet that got a, that had this story broadcast. And they mm-hmm. stopped running Doctor Who before the end of the first season. They only aired about the first six stories. There. So this mm. is the only missing one that they definitely broadcast that millions of people saw there and that they had multiple copies of, presumably, that nonetheless are gone. Vanished, yeah. Yeah. Once again, CBC, release the tapes. Release the tapes. We know well, you have them. At least find that radio serial. So, Tagana, he, you know, turns out, guess what? That was his plan. He's going to totally assassinate the old Khan. But the Grand Vizier throws himself in the way of his sword, delaying the death strike just long enough for Marco Polo and Tagana to show down Sunday, 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 ding, ding, ding. Like, this is what we've been waiting for. This is the buckling of the swashes, ladies and gentlemen. And boy, how about that choreography? This, <laughs> yeah, this is definitely the part where there's a hole in my head. Like, I don't see the movement. And that's just because it was a series of, like, Marco Polo looking smug <laughs> close-ups. Yeah. But... It sounded action-packed. Yeah, we had lots of clangs. It looked like at, at least at one point that they kind of like get almost like caught. I don't even uh, know exactly yeah, what. Yeah, they get into uh, a clash or whatever you call yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. And definitely that's the point where like the Foley changes from clangs to like, you know, the... And the grunt. And so, you know, clearly that's what was going on there. But uh, Marco wins. There's that one last shot of his him being smug, so clearly he won. And it also says on the bottom that Marco disarms him. But anyway. Ooh, and, ding. Yep. Well, not yet. He's not disarmed. Yet. But, but a ding sur- for the vizier, yeah. Oh, yes, that's true. Yeah, he's donezo. So, <laughs> so uh, everybody, you know, they finally, finally, everybody can agree that Tagana was the bad guy. It took an assassination attempt, but we're all here. We're on the same page now. I mean, Marco might not be fully convinced yet. And He's behaving so honorably while he tries to kill me with a great giant sword. Right. I need a little more proof. And so, like, they all, you know, they talk about how he's got to pay and then apparently he kills himself like that's just that's that's it like that's something i really would have liked to have seen like were they implying that his punishment should be to take his life honorably or does he break free of the guards and thrust himself onto the spear i like we will never know unless of course one they novelized his motivations Not really. It's pretty much the same. Okay. Damn. So I'm going to ding again. But also, uh, I I feel like I got to pour one out for Tagana. Because... uh, First suicide in the show, isn't he? 
Yeah. I mean, unless you count slow Wimpicus, I mean. Well, yeah, yeah, I guess. He did kind of, well, no, he was just kind of slow and wimpy. That was a sacrifice rather than a suicide, I guess. Right. Oh, Terry Nation just loved sacrifices, didn't he? (laughs) I I was trying to remember, does the actor who plays Tagana come back for another serial? Uh, Not on television, but he is in one of the very, very best Big Finish plays of them all. He is in a story called Spare Parts, which is sort of an origin story for the Cybermen, that he plays a sort of shabby junk dealer in it. He is still around. Plus, if you want to watch him, the guy who played Marco Polo, and the guy who played Kublai Khan in one episode of The Prisoner together, you can do that. So, yep, Tagana kills himself, and you know, Marco finally agrees to return the keys to the doctor, and then everyone rushes quickly away. The court is amazed. Marco waxes poetical, and then they get to go home, and then it's all over in like five seconds. Yep. (laughs) It's just like, thanks for the keys. Bye. Right. We also get my favorite line from the whole serial, too. He'd have only just wanted it back, Kevin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. You'd assume the the con would be pretty ticked off. Right. But But he's just kind of resigned to it. Yeah, he's he's sanguine about it. I mean, he's got a new, you know, child bride after all. So he's probably... Everybody wins. (laughs) Apart from the fact that no one has treated his gout, and I feel his pain. And he really needs to cut his fingernails. But anyway, so yeah, the court is amazed. And then Marco Polo's kind of like, gee, you wonder where they are now. The end. Oh, and there's that really perfunctory goodbye with Ping Cho, too, if I remember correctly, right? Yeah, it's just like, bye, Ping. Bye, Sue. Right. (laughs) They're just scooting out the door. She's like, oh, yeah, yeah, remember how I said, all right, peace. Yeah, I'll catch you later, except you're not. You're going to die, and I'll never see you again. Okay. Enjoy your marriage, I guess. Yeah. And then, yeah, that's the end. But do you remember Barbara? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure she'll get something memorable to do in the next story. (sighs) So, yeah, that... That ends the first of our lost serials, Marco Polo. So, I guess, what's our thoughts having made it through your first missing episode? Yeah, I I didn't know what to think going into it. I, I was a little bit apprehensive because I knew that this was the first reconstruction. And I thought it was going to be a slog. But this kind of sold me more on the show than anything else. And I know that the dialects is wildly popular. I enjoyed those episodes. I, I enjoyed the first arc as well. But this was hands down my favorite story that we've had so far. And um, I don't know, maybe it was the historical aspect or what have you, but I enjoyed all of the creativity and the fan base and putting together some of the reconstructions that are out there. It made me very sad that we don't have a copy of this. See, for me, I almost feel like in some ways thankful for the reconstruction because i feel like i might not have liked this quite so much i don't it's tough to say right because that's that's a good point i mean i guess that there are some things that your your imagination can fill in like who knows maybe the scene out in the desert with the singing sands maybe that looked terrible i don't i don't know but it sure sounded good. It's it's so hard to know exactly how the Cave of the 500 Eyes actually looked. We can have people tell us, you know, write-ups of it that as it was genuinely terrifying to children. Mm. But it's almost hard to believe it from the evidence we have of those photos. It's, it's you know, just that with the costumes and, and the backgrounds that we have in photos, it looks so lush. lush. Yeah, exactly. Jinx. Simultaneously. It does. That's the thing for me, too, because I find myself more attached to stories that 
I read and, you know, graphic novels and to, you know, to a lesser degree, audiobooks, perhaps because I myself, at the very least, have sort of a, an active imagination. And, and I think one of the things that I was thinking of was the, the movie adaptation of like 300, for example, because that's the one, it's the only thing I've ever seen where it's almost shot for shot an adaptation of a graphic novel and in that way certainly a technical success but i just did not like it as much or like sin city is another good example like i just wasn't as much of a fan despite the fact that it was nearly perfectly identical and certainly saw some amazing performances it still fell short and so i almost wonder if i liked this more because of the format that I saw it in, or were there performances, you know, as subtle and nuanced or even perhaps better? I mean, I would like to see, so I'm, I'm almost not sure it did feel like a slog for me in a lot of cases, but I'm still reluctant to give it a thumbs down because I still think it was pretty groundbreaking. And so, I mean, the format in which you're watching this here, this is a, at least for two of you, a, a completely new experience, right? Uh, no. Not entirely. I mean, like I've seen, you know, as a child of the, I'm going to date myself here, like I, I was born at the very end of the 70s, and, you know, went through the night. I saw a lot of animatic stuff. I don't remember exactly when, but I have certainly seen my share of things that were more animatics and old, some older cartoons. And so I've seen a lot of stuff like this. So this was a new experience for me. I don't know. I, I thought it was kind of cool. In some ways, it's almost more accessible than the series the ones where we we have the actual episodes i don't know how you guys ingest this but we've been watching through and i've had copies on my computer that i just moved through but for something like a reconstruction there are multiple people out online who have tried to breathe life into it so sometimes i feel kind of like i'm tethered to the computer to watch through the episodes. And with this one, there was a little bit more freedom in some mm. ways because so many people had tried to capture it and get it out there. And right. So it's not just the original production and their care and concern, but generations of people after it mm -hmm. who have been trying to preserve it any way they can. Yeah, you, you kind of, more than it just being the product of creative minds at the BBC, this almost feels like that and something more. Well, and it certainly was. And I think that that's, in, in, at least in, in some ways, that makes this episode very special because, like you say, you can consume it in multiple different ways and have multiple different experiences. Um, I mean, granted, some are <laughs> worse than others. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, yes. But this one was pretty good, you know, and thank God for, you know, let's let's get a plug out for whoever, who was it? Can we mention his John name John Cura. The Telesnaps? Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, Absolutely. That was brilliant. his name for them, too. It was his proprietary invention. Yep. It was of next to no use to anybody except for Doctor Who fans a generation after he died. <laughs> yeah. How lucky, right? Oh, yeah. Good job, John Kira. There is a very strange continuity of this, too, because once the story was gone and people realized it, there was the novelization, and the novelizations are their own separate thing from home video or any other way of experiencing Doctor Who. They're very important to a lot of people through the years. Then there are the soundtrack audio releases, and then the telesnap reconstructions. And for some stories more recently, 
finishing them with animation. Mm. There's a process as it goes. And the, the next time you get a missing one, it is going to be one that has been finished with animation. I would look forward to that. You know, I realize that I didn't comment on this, but yeah, I definitely give this one a thumbs up. Andy, what about you? For me, I, I have to say I was uh, I was teetering on meh, despite, you know, the fact that it was fairly slow moving and almost interminable at places. The kind of magic of the telesnap reconstruction and just watching something so very unusual really carried me through and certainly made me more invested in the story and so and also you know a lot of the subtleties with how cool the con was when we finally met him the old off that really turned it around for me like that's when i was like okay yeah this is a thumbs up see i i felt it didn't have the pacing issues that some of the previous episodes did i thought it was a little bit more lively than say the Daleks, which kind of petered out. Yeah, I think that the changes of settings and things like that helped. Also, you could have had a three and a half hour long sandstorm scene and still not have had the pacing issues of some parts of the Daleks. (laughs) Mm, That's true. Uh, That said, there are not that many seven part stories in Doctor Who. It's not a natural story length as far as anyone plans and it's for various reasons and things falling through that have happened twice so early here. Mm -hmm. You aren't going to come up against that type of length again for about four years. So, Kieran, what do you give this? Do you give this a thumbs up, thumbs down, or is it a meh for you? It has to be a thumbs up, but with the difficulty of the bit that there's so much in here that there are extended bits I can't find any connection to and other parts I think are utterly brilliant. And this was my first time really going into this story in any detail. The only other version I'd ever seen or heard was a half an hour long one that was on a DVD. They did it for the uh, box set of the first three stories. They put a sort of short form reconstruction on there. That's all I'd seen before this. And all of the bits that are great are cut out of that. But there are a lot of layers to the good parts that really impressed me. And I can overlook the two episodes of telling Barbara and Susan, they're idiots. Even though when I say that out loud, it doesn't seem okay. Right. (laughs) Or you can just re-edit this to make it look really bad for me. Juan, why do you give it? Okay, I'm going to give the novelization a thumbs up. I highly recommend it. It's really, really interesting. But the reconstructions and, and, and the way I saw it, oh, I'm going to give it a huge meh. I mean, it's mainly because, I mean, there are pacing issues and seven parts. Man, that's a drag. It's pretty strange because I was talking to a friend of mine uh, that we were reviewing this particular serial, you know, for the podcast and everything. And she pretty much told me, I mean, the first season of True Detective is eight episodes. That made my jaw drop to the floor. And it's true. I mean, it's seven episodes whoa man that's that's it and you feel the the seven episodes other than that i think it's interesting it's definitely worth checking out but i would take it a little bit at a time you know otherwise it's definitely a drag and i'm gonna give it a thumbs up you know i didn't really feel that there were pacing issues with this one for me anyway i found that it moved at a pretty decent pace and i did like all the little educational bits because it kind of gives you the vision of the show that as it was originally thought up by Sidney oh, Newman. Oh, no, no. I hope that you're not saying that it veers off from something more historical and, and that sort of thing. Well, you'll you'll see what some of the I other guess I'll see, but... are like in the future. <laughs> but yeah, this is what I was hoping for, to be honest with you, but yeah. I, I do get a feeling that I'll have more bug-eyed aliens. There's nothing quite like this again. No. 
Yeah, nothing that I've ever seen. Um, and I did like the Daleks. So, yeah, I think for the most part, we're giving it, you know, in the thumbs up with a little bit towards the mirror range for some of its pacing issues that people had with it. As far as the viewing numbers of this one goes, it continued along with the 9.5 to 10.4 million viewers, except episode 6, which dipped down to 8.4 million, but that one also aired the day before Easter Sunday. So that might have had something to do with the slightly lower viewership. I mean, I guess they were riding the high of the Daleks. Yeah. I mean, it's still on that Dalek high wave, and we'll see how long that high wave lasts. The reactions at the time, the BBC received multiple notes of appreciation from viewers, so viewers liked it. The reviewers praised the guest cast, but they also thought that the main cast... At times, they were poorly written, Barbara in particular. All right, good for you, original viewership. And Disney contacted the BBC about turning this episode into a movie. What? It would have been one of those 60s, super boring, you know, live action films, like the Zorro TV series and all of those that are a giant bore. So, wow, that's that's crazy. I thought you were going for, like, that darn cat or something. Just... You better stay away from the black hole because I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm warning you all now. The shaggy dog. I'll stand up for the scarecrow of Romney Marsh. That that that's pretty good. Anyway. So modern day consensus in the books that I've looked at, modern day reviewers have given this one 9 and 10 out of 10. In a 2008 wow. poll, this one came in at number 65. Wow. Out of everything? Yep. Goodness. And keep in mind that with that poll, it definitely skewed toward ones that people might have seen. So the fact that a missing episode came in at number 65, that's pretty high considering everything it had against it. But it's been praised by modern day viewers for all of the historical educational bits, the settings, which, you know, clearly you've used the word lush already, and its variety of settings and everything, and of course the strong guest performances. On the other hand, people have complained about the fact that it is very loosely plotted and that the accents can be all over the place sometimes. Of course. <laughs> Also, I mean, <laughs> there was only one monkey. <laughs> Not enough monkeys. It did the work of dozens of monkeys. <laughs> that monkey sense. was enough. <laughs> he was well paid. All right. So that wraps up our discussion of Marco Polo. Next time, we'll see the return of Terry Nation with the Keys of Marinus. So I'd like to thank Kieran and Juan for joining us for this. It's been a pleasure. It was awesome. Everybody, thanks for joining us. I highly encourage you to check out the Reconstructions and let us know what you think. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. I'm looking forward to going on another adventure with you. All right. If you want to contact us, we're on Twitter. We have an email, that at gmail.com. There is a Facebook group. So please subscribe, rate, share. And for now, I'm just going to go and, I guess, lose this podcast in a game of backgammon. Good night. <laughs>